0: This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies
1: the focus on the legal debate on the use of autonomous systems in armed conflict has been on that of the lethal autonomous weapon system with the CCW GGE meeting regularly to discuss whether or not killer robots should be banned, regulated by new law, or regulated using existing IHL. This is particularly timely as we're recording this discussion on day two of the first GGE meeting for 2022 against the backdrop of reports of use of drones in Rus- in the Russian-Ukraine conflict with The GGE talks themselves being derailed by the inability of Russian delegates to attend in person in Geneva. The use of the Kargu 2 drone in the Syrian conflict in 2021, notated in a UN report into the conflict, identifies that the use of drones to undertake independent targeting operations is already occurring. There's been much discussion in civil society and by experts about the potential risks of the use of AI in armed conflict, particularly when it comes to the use of machines to undertake targeting operations. However, the alternate argument, that of the use of artificial intelligence to strengthen decision-making is rarely discussed. Today, we're joined by Professor Hitoshi Nasu, who has recently written on the Kagu 2 drone strike and the lack of progress in the CCWGGE talks on laws. He joins us from the Lieber Institute at West Point to discuss the role of AI in facilitating targeting operations. Hitoshi is a professor at the United States Military Academy, senior fellow at the Stockton Center for International Law, United States Naval War College. Prior to his current appointment, he served as Professor of International Law at the University of Exeter uh, in the UK. And from 2007 to 17, he taught at the Australian National University, where he was also co-director for the Centre for Military and Security Law and the Australian Network for Japanese Law. He publishes widely in the field of public international law with particular focus on international security law, the laws of armed conflict and the law of weaponry. His expertise extends to a wide range of international security law issues, but in particular, we're speaking to him today because of his expertise in the law relevant to military applications of new technologies, such as nanotechnology and artificial intelligence.
0: Well, Professor Nasi, thank you so much for joining us today. The definition of AI laws and other systems that incorporate autonomy for use in armed conflict are different to different people. What is your definition, if you have one, and what type of systems are you talking about when you think AI in armed conflict? Is it focusing on decision support rather than just weapon systems? Or how do you address or deal with the issue that autonomy is ubiquitous and um, almost added to every weapon system uh, that exists uh, today?
2: Well, I do not consider defining these autonomous weapons systems as important, unless we are talking about a new treaty uh, prohibiting or restricting the use of such a system. The relevant question is rather whether the uh, weapons systems that are designed to operate autonomously without human intervention at any point are capable of operating in compliance with the law of armed conflict. As you all know, there are already rules under international law that apply to warfighting that regulates the conduct of hostilities, including the use of autonomous weapon systems. Military forces of any nation are required uh, to comply with those rules So when they make decisions on whether and how to use such uh, autonomous weapon systems. In practice, that has meant that the legal advisors, and we call them uh, judge advocates or uh, JAG officers, needs to be made available uh, to commanders for the planning or directing uh, the targeting operations. Uh, this existing accountability mechanism applies um, uh, to the use of any autonomous weapon systems, whether they are actually used for decision support or integrated into a specific weapon system.
0: You mentioned judge advocate officers, so what is your vision for applying artificial intelligence to legal advising in this context?
2: The advantages uh, artificial intelligence has to offer are accuracy and speed uh, in gathering and assessing information. The speed of warfighting is accelerating because of technological advancement. Think about arms race around hypersonic missiles, uh, space weapons, um, uh, and various cyber capabilities. During the Gaza conflict in May 2021, uh, Israeli defense forces used artificial intelligence to increase the speed of intelligence gathering and analysis, uh, shortening the time for identifying military targets uh, after the initial round of attack, which used to take a month, uh, now just a few days. So you can easily imagine how fast the pace of future, future warfare could be uh, and artificial intelligence is going to be the key to optimising the efficiency of military capabilities. This efficiency uh, will uh, become even more important uh, in future conflict environments where we might be facing peer or near-peer adversaries. Uh, both parties uh, to the conflict would be employing high tech capabilities and the speed and the scale of such fighting could be such that JAG officers are w- w- overwhelmed with the volume of information uh, they need to process for legal advice. In counterinsurgency type of operations, some uh, US and its coalition forces have been conducting over the past uh, two decades or so. They had an advantage of air superiority and the numerous intelligence sources to enable really sophisticated targeting decisions. But in a future conflict, air superiority may be contested and intelligence may be limited before launching strikes. Technologies are accelerating the speed of warfighting. Uh, then we need to take advantage of those technologies to speed up the decision making process as well.
0: We often hear about the concept of um, decision overload or information overload and the the toll that that takes on human decision makers. Um, And I think that your point's a good one when we're talking about how targeting operations are being conducted in current and contemporary conflicts. So with that in mind... How then specifically do you think AI enhances legal compliance during those targeting operations? You've spoken a bit about decision support um, assistance, but, but what sort of functionality do you see AI um, assisting in?:
2: So um, uh, in actual armed conflict, uh, other than deliberate uh, indiscriminate use of force, the biggest problem at the moment that accounts for uh, civilian casualties is a human error. And artificial intelligence has a great potential to fix this problem by mitigating the risk of human error in targeting decisions. For example, artificial intelligence can be used to simulate and assess a large amount of data instantly. At the moment, JAG officers need to perform this task for each targeting decision to provide legal advice. And quite often they are required to do so in a very constrained timeframe. Imagine that they have an AI-based tool at their disposal to assist them as they provide timely and accurate legal advice to the commander and staff engaged in targeting operations. Such a system will shift through a large amount of data on the target and based on pre-established criteria, such a system system will be able to highlight potential legal issues uh, with executing that target. It will provide an additional layer of oversight uh, as JAG officers analyze the various sources of information. I would expect that such a system will help uh, JAG officers uh, focus their attention on the key points of information and necessary for that legal advice. They will be able to focus their time on looking at the most problematic aspects of targeting information. So you can see here a clear potential that artificial intelligence can help facilitate compliance with law armed conflict and mitigate unnecessary human casualties.
0: I think that that's a really great point because in most cases, the discussion on artificial intelligence and armed conflict is firmly focused on lethal autonomous weapon systems and the, the ban killer robot arguments and the human control over the use of lethal force and there's less focus I think on how we can use artificial intelligence to bolster and um, assist in existing targeting operations. Uh, we've also heard a bit from, um, from some of the other people we've interviewed for their podcast about civilian casualties and errors um, being that conglomerate of issues when we're we're dealing with fast-paced information and targeting, and and um, layers of information. So I think it's a really good point that probably doesn't get as much airtime as the other side of the argument, which is focused on the far right of the artificial intelligence. So I, I think that's um, helpful to talk about, but. Circling then back to that far-right use of artificial intelligence in armed conflicts, um, most, most of our listeners are probably familiar with the Kargu-2 drone that was um, reported as being used in, in Libya. So you, you undertook a legal assessment of, um, of the use of the Kargu-2 drone in Libya. So could you talk us through what happened there, what the legal issues were with that particular capability?
2: Sure. Um... Well, it was a UN panel report uh, that referred to a possible use of the Cargo 2 in the conflict in Libya. Uh, It was released, um, I think, back in March 2021. uh, And interestingly, uh, it took almost three months uh, for for the public to notice the potential significance uh, of this report. And then start sensationalizing it as the first use of these autonomous weapons systems in human history. The truth is that um, it's not clear uh, if the Cargo Two was actually uh, used in an autonomous mode uh, to kill any fighters. Uh, but such autonomous capabilities, whether they're actually used or not, uh, raise important legal issues, um, which I picked up uh, in my post. It's important to emphasize that the autonomous capability to operate without human intervention does not necessarily make the Cargo Two unlawful or incapable of operating uh, within the bounds of the law, it's perfectly possible uh, to envisage a situation where the Kagu 2 could be employed in full compliance with the law of armed conflict. So it's not a prohibited weapon, but rather what I tried to point out in my post is whether sufficient consideration has been given to various legal obligations that would have been relevant to the use of the Kagu 2 in the battlefield. For example, uh, whether the Kagu 2 was equipped with the ability to identify and distinguish uh, hold and combat, uh, those who were injured or sick or otherwise expressed the intention to surrender, uh, and uh, whether the Kagu 2 was programmed uh, to disengage from such people the military forces that employ such a system have a legal obligation already to find technological solutions to those problems before deploying them in the field or to limit the operational parameters in which such a system can be used.
0: I think that's a pretty timely conversation. Um, As I said uh, earlier, the the CCW GGE is talking at the moment about whether or not regulation of uh, lethal autonomous weapon systems needs to be enhanced through introduction of either a new treaty or new legal obligations or perhaps even uh, imposing particular policy obligations upon states. So with that in mind, and having regard to how cargo 2 might have been used in autonomous mode, in your opinion, is there a need for a new law to regulate the use of these systems or does existing IHL cover the field?
2: No, I don't think there's any need uh, for a new treaty uh, to ban the use of um, these autonomous weapons systems. I do not see a need for it. Uh, I do not see it desirable or even feasible. It's not desirable because, as I said earlier, uh, with innovative applications of artificial intelligence, autonomous systems have a great potential to reduce human errors and mitigate unnecessary civilian casualties. The ban on these autonomous weapons systems will be either so ambiguous that it does not have any meaningful impact whatsoever on arms race in this area, or even worse, stifle technological developments that bring many humanitarian benefits to the future of battlefield. And it's not feasible either because many states investing heavily in this technology will not agree with such a ban. It's plausible that some NGOs call on states to adopt the treaty ban, but it will not be legally binding on those that are not party to it. Unfortunately, for those states that are persuaded or misled by activists, they will be deprived of the opportunities to develop or acquire autonomous weapons systems and therefore will lose out in a future conflict as because they are not uh, able to catch up with the speed of warfighting.
0: But yeah, I think the uh, proliferation argument is a, an important one. I think someone um, we spoke to recently used the term "the drone is out of the bag" uh, when they were talking about the use of or uncrewed aerial vehicles as just a general capability in the conflict, and with the capability of autonomy being attached to those systems. I think we're already seeing its use across across states and and in the hands of, of um, non-state actors as well, which is which is probably the concern, more concerning part. But um, that I think the proliferation piece is something that, that really hasn't been too central to the discussions of the GGE the at the moment, but seems to be more of a concern than the possibility of, of using laws lawfully. Um, so with that in mind, do you think then that the cat is out of the bag, the drone is out of the bag? Is the use of laws inevitable?
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, once the technology is discovered or invented, it is in the human nature to exploit it. So, and once developed, the technology will be further refined for improvement and sophistication, uh, often with various tailored applications. Um, so just think about how the technology evolved uh, in the field of, uh, in the field of uh, automobile, uh, aviation and communications. The law cannot provide a solution here. Uh, it's a problem created by technology. It's only the technology that can provide a solution to the problem,
0: which is interesting because, as as we know, we're we're recording um, in. On the 8th of March, which is when uh, the GGE is having uh, more discussions about the potential regulation of of laws, you recently posted a piece about the outcomes of the previous talks on laws. So what do you predict will occur in these latest discussions or for the future of those talks?
2: Well, I cannot predict what might happen in the CCW or other diplomatic uh, forums. Uh, Currently, the debate is deadlocked uh, in the CCW process and it's plausible that a group of states initiate a separate process towards the ban or regulation of these autonomous weapon systems, uh, well, much like the Ottawa process for anti-personal landmines uh, and Dublin process for cluster munitions. Uh, but you can see how limited the impact of such initiatives has had on the use of such weapons in the actual battlefield. Um, but rather than talking about a ban or regulation, uh, there are certain issues that can be usefully discussed at those um, diplomatic forums to provide clarity uh, to the existing rules, uh, regulating the use of these autonomous weapon systems. The intention of my post there was to help those diplomats uh, to direct their attention to the right set of issues and show them a way out of this deadlock. For example, uh, there is an unresolved question about the degree of accuracy uh, that is required to satisfy the legal requirement of discrimination. For example, uh, high-speed personnel recognition system uh, that reports, uh, let's say, 98% accuracy and uh, lab conditions. Well, is it accurate enough um, to operate in compliance with the principle of discrimination? What if the performance is degraded to 80% accuracy against a single moving target in the field? Does that still satisfy the legal requirement of being discriminate? I would imagine that many activist organizations would take issue with it, but also we have to be realistic about what technological capabilities can achieve. And I'm not even sure if the accuracy of a machine's performance can be measured uh, in such a simplistic manner. Possibly there will have to be some kind of matrix uh, to accommodate various context-dependent factors. It'd be extremely useful uh, if the states can get together uh, and develop an agreement or even awareness of um, uh, what the principle of discrimination in the law of armed conflict actually means in technological terms.
0: I think that's an interesting point too because it doesn't seem that there's been that translation of uh, the ones and nuns of data Into what legal standards um, require in the laws of armed conflict, and it's 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 kind of comparing apples and oranges in some way, trying to translate a number. I mean, anyone who's who's done a a criminal law course to say what does what does beyond reasonable doubt mean, and and everyone says it's ninety five percent certain. Well, no, it's not. It's not like that. There's a number of different factors and considerations to put into play. So don't pick a number. But then when we're actually doing testing and evaluation of these systems, the test spits out a number. So as you say, is 98% okay, is 80% okay? Or well, if you flip it around the other way, if 80% accuracy is your standard, does that mean one in five targets is going to be the wrong target and is that okay? And when you put it in those terms, I mean, that's that's troubling when you think about the, the legal obligations that are necessary to take decisions in armed conflict and comply with our existing IHL obligations. So I think there's a significant amount of work that we, we are going to have to expect to see states to do before we see anything coming out of GGE for use of these systems in compliance with existing IHL obligations, which, as, as you know and as you point out in your post, is already something that they've mandated as part of the, um, the use of, of laws going forward is that requirement to comply at least with existing IHL obligations. That was, um, that was really interesting and I really appreciate your views on those, those issues. But if we were looking to expand a bit further on this topic, noting there is so much out there um, in respect of this particular issue, um, I mean, if you if you just Google it, you'll be overwhelmed. If you can just type laws into the into the search engine, you'll be pretty much overwhelmed with the responses. So what would you recommend for listeners look um to look at to read further into this topic?
2: Well, first of all, I would urge everyone to exercise cautions uh, when you actually find some emotional arguments, uh, particularly those calling for a ban on any weapon systems, including at least auto- autonomous weapon systems. Uh, you may think that delegating uh, warfighting to autonomous machines is inhumane, but making such a demand without having regard to national interests of um, a state and operational operational requirements of military forces will only lead to inhumane outcome. There is a reason why we rely on the law as a social tool to regulate our conduct. And this is the same for international relations among states. Uh, States only come to an agreement after considering and balancing competing interests. Emotional appeal does not really help Uh, states make a rational choice in this process the law can provide a meaningful solution only when states see it in their national interest to abide by it and operationally make sense. So uh, at the Lieber Institute, the way I'm now uh, working, uh, we strive to create a greater understanding of the law on this sort of practical issues, bringing operational perspectives and balancing them with humanitarian needs. Articles of War uh, is a, a blog forum uh, we host, uh, and uh, I would encourage everyone to visit the page to find out more about uh, various legal commentaries available uh, from the experts in the field. But those, um, uh, for those of you uh, who would like to take uh, a look at more scholarly publications um, uh, on this topic, I would encourage uh, those people uh, consulting International Law Studies, uh, which is one of the oldest international law journals uh, uh, published by the Stockton Center for International Law at the Naval War College.
0: Great, thanks for that. I think um, for those listeners who aren't aware, uh, the Articles of War have recently published uh, a special series on the Russian Ukraine conflict, which has actually been really, really interesting to read with quite a, a broad, broad reaching list of experts who've come in to talk about different aspects of that conflict. Um, which I'll, I'll link to in the show notes, along with the, along with those posts that you, you put up there for the cargo 2 and the GGE as well. Uh, so thank you so much for that, um, Hitoshi, and thank you so much for your time. It's great to catch up with you and have a chat. Um, and, um, speaking of articles of war, there was a really interesting post that, um, that he has recently added talking about deep fake technology in the use of, um, armed conflict, which is another fascinating area. And we might have to circle back and have a chat about that another time
2: absolutely and that uses the artificial intelligence as well
0: there we go (laughs) awesome thank you so much pleasure this podcast was made by the law and the future of war research group at the university of queensland law school a full list of episodes and links to additional material as well as our contact details are available on our website just search for law and the future of war this podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.